This is episode 174 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled Working from Home with Nick Bloom. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm really delighted to welcome a new guest to the program today. Nicholas Bloom is with us. Hi, Nick. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. All right. I'm going to introduce you. And he's the William Everly Professor of Economics at Stanford University, a senior fellow at SIEPR, and the co-director of Productivity, Innovation, and Entrepreneurship Program at the National Bureau of Economic Research. His research focuses on management practices and uncertainty, which I thought was pretty funny to put those two things together. Makes sense. (laughs) He previously worked at the UK Treasury and McKinsey. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the recipient of a whole bunch of prizes, along with the Alfred Sloan Fellowship. He has a BA from Cambridge, a master's in philosophy from Oxford, and a PhD from University College London. So tick off all those institutions. And on the personal side, he's English. He announced that up front so uh, we can be prepared for his accent. Living with his Scottish wife and American kids on the Stanford campus in a multilingual English household. Yeah, so we'll uh, try and avoid confusing each other today with boots and uh, tabling (laughs) things and second and all all those uh, confusing words. So yeah, Nick, great to have you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, having me on, Jennifer. And today we're going to talk about working from home, remote work, telecommuting, all these different words, WFH, all these different things that we have now. But I want to step back first to what your research has previously shown us about telecommuting and working from home. So you did some research, uh, in particular with a Chinese company, if I have this straight, in which you found that there were a lot of benefits from working from home. So tell us about those. Yes. By the way, in the background, you can probably hear loud thudding. That's like classic working from home. One of my kids is like charging up and down the stairs. (laughs) Same here. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's a, Occupational hazard is uh, small children, pets, everything. So a long time, so I uh, have been interested in working from home for more than a decade, actually, going back to the late, uh, you know, 2009, 2010. The reason is I worked at McKinsey long ago. I was interested and still am in management practices. And it seems there's a some set of management practices that everyone agrees are like good or bad. Like, for example, you know, you want to promote high performers and give people constructive feedback and measure what's going on in your business. But something that I noticed before the pandemic was working from home, there was such a range of opinions. So some people thought Mm -hmm. it was great, some thought it was terrible. And I wanted to run a scientific study. (laughs) And, you know, a piece of amazing good luck was someone called James Liang, who is um, the co-founder and at the time the chairman, but he was the initial CEO originally of C-Trip, 
which is China's largest travel agency. They're worth, now they're worth, I don't know, $20 billion on NASDAQ. They're 40,000 employees. They're like a massive company. Mm. He, uh, in true Stanford style, decided to take, you know, come and do uh, some graduate study at Stanford. He was in the back of my class. And so I got talking to James at some point. And they said, out in, this was in 2010, they uh, were facing extremely expensive rents out in Shanghai and so wanted to mm. shift some of their employees to working from home, were thinking about it but weren't sure. And so James and I came up with an idea to do what's called a randomized control trial. So formally what we did is C-Trip announced to two divisions, hotel and airfare, that they had a working from home uh, kind of pilot going on and asked if anyone would like to take part in it, which would involve working from home for four out of five days a week and uh, 500 people volunteered, 500 said no, which already tells you, you know, a lot of people don't want to work from home. The people uh-huh. that vol- you know, said no tended to be young, single, living in small apartments that were basically wanted to come into work every day. And the people that volunteered were obviously you know, older, married, with kids. And then they took those 500 volunteers and they did a randomization. So James drew a ping pong ball out of an urn on, <laughs> on C-Trip TV and it said nice. even which meant if you had an even birthday, so you were born on the second, fourth, sixth, eighth, tenth of the month, you then work from home for the next nine months. And if it said odd, uh, you know, like I'm the 5th of May, that's odd, you had to uh, stay in the office. And they did that for nine months. So it was designed, honestly, exactly like the way you might design mm-hmm. a drugs trial with mm-hmm. a treatment and control sample, you know, hundreds of participants, and you follow them for nine months and actually follow them for a whole year extra after the end of the experiment. And so what did you find? Well, um, okay, I thought I'd, I, you know, I'd, I'd pause <laughs> to give it a bit of dramatic suspense at that point. Okay. Um, so, you know, I just, just before I tell you what we found, I should say Seatrip's view in advance was that um, they would save a lot of money in office space, but people would goof off. So their they're kind of view is, look, if they're at home, they're going to be messing about. They'd be watching, you know, Chinese version of Oprah Winfrey or trading or playing computer games, all kind of, you know, whatever it was, but they wouldn't sure. be. Uh, working. So they found that working from home actually increased productivity by 13%, which is huge. Yeah. So they found an enormous increase in productivity of employees at home. Quite astounding. And remember, this is a massive sample. So these are highly statistically significant results, very robust. Um, that was the first finding. And when you drilled into it, it turned out about a quarter of that uplift is they were just people working from home. They were mainly making telephone calls, taking bookings, dealing with customers, et cetera. They were 3.5% more productive per minute. And, uh, you know, basically when you interviewed them, I did a lot of cognitive interviews, they would say stuff like, you know, it's, it's, it's quieter at home. I can concentrate. The office is sure. really noisy. And I, I remember, you know, the most striking time was one of the employees said, um, she said, you know, the woman in the cubicle next to me she clips her toenails in in the office, oh. you know, with, oh. with like a toenail clipper. Oh. Uh, she she does it below the desk. She thinks I don't notice, but I do notice. I totally <laughs> notice. And you know, there's all kinds of stories like this, or World Cup sweepstakes, or there's a cake in the breakout room, or someone whose girlfriend had just like you know, they mm. were basically come up with all kinds of stories of how the office was very noisy. So three and a half percent more productive is just quiet, and they can concentrate at home. And then the other nine and a half percent of the, you know, the total 30 percent increase was from people actually working more minutes. So initially hmm. you may think, well, of course, that makes sense. They're, uh, they're working their commute time. But in C-Trip, it doesn't quite work like that because they have shifts. So, for example, their shift may be Monday to Friday, nine to five. And everyone comes in the office on Wednesday and then the home base employees are at home the rest of the week. And the office employees are obviously in the office the rest of the week. It turned out if you look in the data 
people at home really did work nine to five Monday to Friday with short lunch breaks. Whereas in the office, if you actually look in the login and log out details, they'd often turn up and start work at like 9.15 because the bus is late or the car breaks down. They take long lunch breaks, they take long coffee breaks, et cetera. So the home base, or they're more likely to take days off. So the home base workers were more likely to work their full day and they're also more likely to log in. So sick days were far fewer. So that was you know, the other reason. And so I, there was this overwhelming finding of far greater productivity from employees working from home. Yeah, that's, it's really interesting. I'm, now I have even more questions for you. <laughs> um, but let me ask first, did you find any downsides with that, uh, with that study that you did? Yeah, there were, you know, one other upside is, by the way, the quit rates of the home base employees halved. So mm. C-TRIP saw quit rates of about 50% per year, which is actually roughly average of the US. And the home-based employees, they, their quit rates fell to about 25%. So those are the two upsides, primarily performance, but also lower quit rates. The, you know, the one major downside is promotion. So in the data, the promotion rates of the home-based employees was also down by about a half. And that is a dramatic drop. And so when we interviewed them, we interviewed the managers, it turned out there were a couple of main reasons. One, I think, was um, you know, out of sight, out of mind. So the yeah. home base employees are just more likely to be forgotten about. They're not around. You know, They don't come to mind when you think about who should we promote. And then the other story was the senior managers and managers say, well, look, in order to be promoted, you need to kind of know who your colleagues are and get a sense of the office culture and know what's going on and maybe think about new products. And you need to be around in the office for that. And so basically they were saying some of that lunch gossip and, you know, chats and long coffee breaks, you know, a lot of it may not have been very constructive. We've been talking about, you know, yesterday's football match, you know, their love life, but some of it was talking about stuff that was kind of important for the firm mm -hmm. and would make you a better manager. So that was clearly a downside. I should point out that unlike COVID in C-Trip, if you remember, I mentioned only half of people volunteered. And then obviously amongst the volunteers, you randomized roughly half of them to work from home. You can imagine if you have a team, the teams are about 15 people. You may have only typically three say that were working from home and the other 12 are in the office. So I think the promotion cost of being at home is obviously there but if you think about under code if everyone's at home we're all on an equal playing field but it did highlight one big downside if you're one of a few people that are working from home and you're working from four out of five days a week you are likely to suffer potentially a significantly lower rate of promotion the other down it's not so much the other downside the other kind of surprising finding was the incredible rate of churn and people changing their minds so we ran the experiment and at the end of the nine-month experiment ctrip announced They'd increased profits per employee by $2,000 per year. They're incredibly happy with the working from home scheme, and they rolled it out to the whole company. But they also let everyone re-choose, and about half of the people in the experiment changed their minds. So we asked them, you know, what had gone on, and they said, um, well, it just it was getting lonely at home, or I was getting mm -hmm. depressed, or they, they fell mm -hmm. victim to one of the three great enemies of working from home, which are the bed, the fridge, or the television, and they said, I have to come back <laughs> into the office. And you know, a lot of people couldn't tell when you interviewed them, they said, I didn't know. I thought I'd be great, but I got home and I found it too depressing or, you know, I gained 20 pounds. I just couldn't, you know, keep me, I couldn't resist temptation or, you know, any number of stories. And so the other, you know, once you let at the end of the nine month experiment, they then let people re-choose and then the productivity impact went up to about 20%. And what happened was people that basically working from home did not work out well for them, switched back to the office. And so those that 
selected in and stayed in. And some of them in the office switched home, turned out to be the better performing home-based employees. So the other big so what out of it, I think is choice is really important because people have very different views on this and even their views change over time. And so I think there has to be some element of any successful strategy of allowing people to choose whether and probably how many days within limit they work from home a week. And tell us what the circumstances were of the employees who chose to work from home there. Like, were they, because I'm going to preview a little bit some of the things that I know you're going to talk about. Like, did they have a segregated space where they could work? Did they have children at home? You know, all those kind of complicated things. Was, Was that looked into at the beginning or were they just sent home? Yeah, no, great question. So, um, you know, this is, again, very different from COVID. In fact, working from home, I kind of think of working from home and COVID as a bit like when the meteorite, you know, the one that wiped out Mm -hmm. the dinosaurs 100 million years ago (laughs) hit the earth. It's like before the meteorite, there are dinosaurs. Then the meteorite hits and the climate is destroyed for, you know, a few hundred years. And, you know, then there's all scavengers. And then post when things are cleared up again, mammals take over. And it's kind of like that with working from home. Before COVID, it was very rare. Only 5% of working days in America were working from home. Under COVID, it's now roughly 40% of working days are at home. So it's very common. And post-COVID, from the numbers I can talk about, it looks like it will go back down to 20%. So mm. less than today, but way more than what we had before. Mm-hmm. And just in terms of circumstances before COVID, what C-Trip said is you, if you're going to work from home, you won't allow any kids that you're looking after at home, which oh, obviously right. most yeah. of us totally right. breach now. You <laughs> have to have your own room, which yeah. is not your bedroom, which, you know, I, I you obviously can't see this podcast, but I'm kind of in that 40, only 49% of Americans fall into that. I'm just in that 49%. I'm sitting in a spare room in our house, which my mother-in-law normally lives in, but it's just basically a tiny desk and an enormous bed. Mm-hmm. So it's not great, but you know, in, in for C-Trip, you had to have your own room, not your bedroom. And finally, you had to have high quality working broadband and they'd go and install their equipment in your home. Oh, wow. If you compare that to now, you know, the majority of Americans, actually over 50% of people have kids under age of 18 in the house. You know, less than half of us have our own room that's not our bedroom. 65% of people have internet that's fast enough to you know, run video calls, but video conferences, but 35% don't. And a lot of people, you know, we were talking before the, uh, before we formally started the podcast, even my, you know, I dropped my laptop coming in from the garden. It broke, it broke. I'm on my old spare one, but working from home under COVID is not great. Uh, you know, I think the best analogy is, it's like Winston Churchill's old quote on democracy. He said, um, democracy is a terrible form of government, but it's better than all the others. It's kind of like working from home now is not great. But it's better than the alternative, which is honestly not having a job or going into the office. So I, you know, I don't want to put forward now as a great example of working from home. I do want to argue it's a very undervalued thing before COVID. And I think post-COVID, we're going to see a dramatic increase in long run working from home. Do you think any of the conclusions from the Chinese study don't apply in the U.S. because of work culture differences? Or do you think it's pretty transferable? No. So this. Two responses there. One is I think the conclusions do all apply, but the one caveat is that being, you know, I I spent a while out in Shanghai and this C-Trip's headquarters there. James, you know, looked very much like uh, some modern Silicon Valley or New York or any kind of big city office block. I was in Columbus, Ohio recently. It looks like like a lot of the buildings out there. Okay. James Liang, who co-founded it, used to work in Oracle for eight years out in the US. So it's a very kind of American style company. The thing that doesn't, it's not so much doesn't apply, it's not so generalizable as the jobs they were doing out in C-Trip 
were making telephone calls and taking bookings. So they're, they're honestly not team-based jobs, despite the fact in call mm-hmm. centers, people are called teams like red team and blue team, or, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, Hufflepuff and Gryffindor, whatever they call them. Um, <laughs> they were actually not really team jobs. They were basically individual jobs. You would just deal with the you know, you'd sit and deal with customer complaints or process phone calls, et cetera. So I think the thing that I'm working on now, but honestly, I, you know, I'll talk about it in the podcast, but for most of your listeners and for both me and you, and probably, you know, again, probably everyone that's listening, if you have a graduate degree and a kind of more senior managerial creative job, it's not obvious to me you want to be at home uh, full time. In fact, my advice is generally for most people, probably it works best being in the office, something like three days a week, let's say Monday, Wednesday, Friday, the whole team is in the office. We're all there. You know, it can meet clients and customers and do trainings and have team lunches. And on, let's say, Tuesday, Thursday, we go home. Because I think while CTRIP employees are honestly just churning through hundreds of phone calls, could function well indefinitely probably at home if they could put up with the loneliness. For most of modern, particularly graduate jobs, you definitely need some kind of team involvement. And in the short run, you can get away with it. So there's plenty of evidence in the short run. We've all been very productive working from home. But I think long-run productivity is really going to start to suffer if we can't come up with new ideas and can't connect and can't basically be creative. And that, I think, is aided particularly by face-to-face interaction. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that we'll probably circle back to. So I'm starting to hear from people that I work with that they are starting to say things like, I never thought I would say this, but I'm really looking forward to returning to the office. And so I think your comments about people kind of evolving or changing their minds is is an important point. What are you hearing from your colleagues? Very similar things. I have to say, I'm in the same camp too. I really miss being in the office. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I feel so representative of these surveys, just to give you a sense. So I've been running multiple surveys in the US of both individual employees and firms. So the employees want to tell you a bit about, but we surveyed We've run two waves on our third wave now, two and a half thousand Americans aged 20 to 64 that earned $20,000 or more last year. So these are basically all people you'd expect to be working full time this year. And then the question is, what are they doing? And then what, you know, then I come on to preferences, but roughly speaking right now, about one third of Americans are working from home, roughly one third are working on the business premises and one third aren't working at all. So that's quite an amazing change versus last year, they'd all be working. Um, so it tells you, A, about you know the horrific scale of unemployment, but B, the huge number of people working from home. And if you look at their earnings, the people working from home tend to earn significantly more because they're much more to be educated and senior. So it probably accounts for something like 60, even two, you know, 65% of economic activity. So quite astoundingly, we're in a kind of working from home economy, um, which I think has been a, tremendously important for combating COVID if we couldn't have done that we'd have had to probably return to the office far sooner. Mm-hmm. But the other thing we ask people is post-COVID, once there's a vac- assuming there's a vaccine, how many days a week would you like to work from home? And that was really striking in the sense that 20% of people said never. <laughs> like, please, you know, <laughs> never again. I don't ever want to, you know, so fed up with it. And so in a, if you look at who they are, they're not surprising. They tend to be younger, uh, single, living in you know the center of cities and you know you know the stylized fact that one third of americans meet their spouse in the workplace well you know if you're young and single you don't want to spend all day in a small room in, a, in a, an apartment mm-hmm. so they definitely want to get you know back into work 
And then there's 25% that want to work from home full time, even post COVID. And they tend to be older, married with kids in a house out in the suburbs and, you know, could do without the long commute. And they have, you know, a very kind of uh, active, effectively social and family life outside of work. Mm-hmm. And then the majority of people, which I think, you know, put myself in, and it sounds like you would be too, would be, they want to come into work basically something like two to three days a week. So personally, I would love the, you know, a schedule whereby I came in Monday, Wednesday, Friday, all my social activities, my training, my client work, my teaching, my research, my seminars, everything I do that's kind of interactive is then Tuesday, Thursday, it's quiet time. I'm at home, but everyone else knows that it's kind of the norm to be at home on Tuesday, Thursday. So if most people are at home that you don't feel left out, there's no sense of you know, oh my gosh, I better go in because the boss isn't going to see me as long as the boss and the boss's boss and everyone in the firm is at home on Tuesday and Thursdays, it's fine. And there's no penalty from working from home. And that's where I think a lot of firms are heading post pandemic. Right now, it's very hard to do anything because we're all controlled by health regulations. So just an example, I'm in Santa Clara County, which is basically Silicon Valley. There's about 3 million people living here. So it's quite a big county in the US. But our ability to work is entirely driven by county regulation. So I've been involved in Stanford University's decision about returning to work. And, you know, I asked a question about if you had, let's say, a junior faculty member who uh, has young kids and is living in a very crowded apartment and finds it very hard to work at home, could they come into the office? And the, uh, the answer is no, under county regulations, they can only come in right now if they have a necessity to do so. So now is odd and it's not mm-hmm. really, you know, the CEO's decision or manager's decision, but post-COVID, I think we're going to settle down into a big increase in working from home, but it's not for most people going to be full-time. Most firms, most individuals I'm speaking to are very much aligned. They see something. I mean, I actually gave an executive education class this morning in Stanford on this to about 25 very senior CEOs. And, you know, you know, people asking questions, one was in India, two are in Switzerland, in the US and the UK. The common theme seemed to be right now, we're basically all working from home. Post-pandemic, we see something like two to three days a week, maybe working from home with a bit of flexibility around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so more of a hybrid kind of structure. Well, I think you might win the award for the understatement of the year when you say now is odd. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What's your personal experience been like? Um, I don't, I mean, you can probably hear this like endless noises in the background. So I uh, live out in California uh, as a result because the earthquake risk out here. I mean, we've had, obviously, it's a 1906 earthquake. There's another one in 1989. I actually felt one about a year ago. We live in a wood frame house, so the soundproofing is pretty dreadful. Um, it's a very nice house, but, you know, there's, I can hear like two rooms over. Mm-hmm. So I have four kids aged four up to 17. In fact, my four-year-old, it was her first day of kindergarten today. She turns five tomorrow. It was her first day of kindergarten, and it was all online. I would say for me, working from home, I would prefer to be in the office at least part-time, but I'm also aware that I'm one of the lucky ones. It hasn't been too bad. Uh, My equipment isn't perfect. It's a bit lonely and isolating being at home, honestly. Uh, It's very hard to concentrate. Like just, you know, I was slightly late to join the podcast because my four-year-old, we shoved her in front of the TV and after about an hour of Octonauts, she said, oh, bored. Daddy, Mm. can you come play with me? And, you know, I... I took a play with her for 10, 15 minutes and I had to go. And it, I, I know that this is such a common issue from talking to so many people with particular kids mm-hmm. that you feel terrible because they're, you know, they're not, honestly, online school is okay, but it's not great. And you're aware that there's a trade-off. And it's why one of the huge 
issues, even amongst economists on restarting the economy, is actually restarting schools. Because until we can get schools back, it's very hard for people with kids to actually work effectively at home. So that's a big issue. And then the other issue I hear repeatedly is problems of sharing rooms, you know, couples where the, one of my, you know, for example, one of my uh, colleagues, she shares an apartment with her husband. Uh, it's not a big apartment, doesn't have great soundproofing. And normally it wouldn't matter, but now they're both often on conference calls at home. And mm-hmm. you know, she says she sits in the clothes closet on a chair in the morning. Mm-hmm. So they've got two doors between them. So he's in the living room. She's in the clothes closet in the bedroom. Then they rotate in the afternoon. But can you imagine how depressing that is to spend a mm-hmm. half a day when you're on a conference call in a clothes closet? Uh, so, you know, uh, there are a lot of internet problems. I've had several. I mean, you must have had the same thing, endless video calls where people's internet goes down. All of these things make working from home now I mean, it's really not great. It's a lot better than people expected. So the survey evidence, 70% of firms say they were happy with working from home. It's better than they thought, but it's still not as good as the, um, on average, the pre-pandemic model. I think it's one of those things where the idea of it sounds really great. And then when the practice comes in, you know, or over time, it's just not as great as you thought it was. So the first few times you see your colleagues, children on the on camera, you know, it's super sweet. It's like, oh, I get to see their kids. That's so great. And then after the hundredth time you've seen the child on the camera, it's yeah, not not so great, and and not so great for the parents either, because I mean, children are just incredibly disruptive, right? And and imagine what it's like for a child who normally doesn't have the parent at home to suddenly have access to the parent. You know, my heart goes out to the little kids that are pounding on the door and trying to peer through the slats on the thing or going around and poking their head in the window. I mean, to have your parents so close and yet inaccessible just seems yeah. really hard. Yeah. You know, there's a friend of mine, um, Christy Johnson. So she was a GSB, an MBA student at Stanford, uh, the business school, what we call the G- graduate school of G- business, the GSB. So Christy was there. She went to work for McKinsey and then she set up her own consulting firm called Artemis Connection, which is full-time working remotely. And they basically hire more veteran consultants that, you know, I was at McKinsey as well, get kind of burnt out by that horror show, uh, extremely long hours and want to do something Mm -hmm. uh, that they don't have to travel and maybe live in different parts of the country. It was interesting talking to her. She said, one of the things you have to accept when you're working from home is it's not the same as the office. Kids and pets will come in all the time. You'll have disruptions. Just, you know, get over it and get on. And I agree. I I have a colleague that has a new baby and uh called emma and you know emma this one-year-old is frequently there crawling all over the place uh-huh. uh and you know he's like he's, he's holding her and she's trying to grab the i mean mm-hmm. it, it's sweet i agree we you know everyone kind of it is what it is and uh i the other day i had a very distracted call with someone who's uh daughter was behind her kind of playing uh, I think it was Minecraft and everyone was mesmerized you could see the screen facing <laughs> our zoom screen by what was going on um but yeah I I you know this isn't perfect there's definite upsides I in C-Trip what we saw is the first two or three months were euphoric and people were really happy mm-hmm. it's like the honeymoon phase mm-hmm. and then it started to grate and as time went on it got worse and worse and people you know by like Seven or eight months. I mean, I, and I mentioned that nine months, half the people returned to the office by, you know, seven or eight months. I'm like, oh my God, please, please let me back. You know, I'm so going so stir crazy. And these are people who were only at home four out of five days a week. And of course, could go out normally on the evenings and weekends. So it wasn't right. as bad as it is now. So yeah, I, uh, you know, 
I'm sure there's a huge swelling of people out there that are desperate to get back into the office. I mean, I hear that when I talk to firms repeatedly. Um, they're doing all they can to try and open up offices. The problem is, and any manager will know this, it's actually very hard to open up offices. It, the office of today is not like what it was in 2019. For example, for me to go onto Stanford campus, I have to wear a mask inside at all times. You have to socially distance. You have to have hand washing. You have to fill out form. I mean, the whole thing is actually quite painful and unpleasant. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I've only been, you know, I haven't, I've only been in once to do it. So I just thought, honestly, I'd rather work from home. Yeah, that's just hard to compare, right? Because things are so strange to to glom on to the understatement. Yeah, now it's odd. So also we're under lockdown. People are very worried about their relatives' health. I mean, there's just a, a, a lot of things going on. Let me ask you a question that's probably going to make you speculate, but if you're willing to, I'd be interested in your thoughts. I do notice that in a number of my clients who have wanted to work from home and faced a lot of resistance from their company to do so. One of the big drivers that they that was a reason that they wanted to work from home was because of the unpleasant work environment. So nobody ever told me about their colleague clipping their toenails, <laughs> but generally it being loud and distracting and especially with the open office uh, environment, So I'm wondering how much of it is if we could accommodate people better at work and give them a nicer environment at work, if there wouldn't be so much enthusiasm about working from home. Again, I'm asking you to speculate, but what do you think? No, it's a great question. I one of the things I've seen, and we've collected data, but there's been a number of other surveys. There's so many, like Gallup and J.P. Morgan and Upwork, and most Mm. people have surveyed people. The number one reason on average people report wanting to work from home is actually to avoid the commute. Yeah. And then that comes in quite substantially ahead of just about everything else. And then second is often some version of privacy. And it's it's basically can't be bothered <laughs> to uh, shave, you know, whatever, oh. get dressed, get washed, you know, put on oh. whatever it is. It's like the routine. Um and then the third is, you know, those are both push factors. The third is a pull is, you know, see family. But I think the primary driver is avoiding the commute, which for the average American is 40 minutes each way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that obviously also involves typically some cost. I mean, you're driving and you have to pay for gas and, you know, maintenance on the car, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that's an enormous driver. The other thought I had is post-pandemic, if you believe in – you know, during the pandemic and post-pandemic, it looked really different. They're actually pulling, pushing in opposite directions. So during the pandemic, the idea of workplaces is where you isolate from others. So you want to set up your office with lots of little cubicles and perspex screens to separate off from each other. But post-pandemic, if you follow my rationale and what most firms seem to be talking about, actually the office should be designed in the exact reverse. So if you think of most of us, you know, particularly you know, managers and more senior people, a chunk of our work maybe say, you know, half to two thirds is maybe group work, meeting with others, meet, you know, presentations, client events, lunches, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And let's say we move that to all of the Monday, Wednesday, Friday time and we're in the office, Tuesday, Thursday, we kind of try and do our quiet work, our report writing, our, you know, our 360 re-reviews and you know, expense forms, et cetera, reading. If that's the case, you actually want the office of the future should be set up in a way that facilitates group events. So, Actually, masses of cubicles probably isn't really what we want because when we're in the office, we're primarily in the office to meet with others and have discussions. So maybe we do want some meeting rooms so we can have private one-on-one meetings, but a lot of it will be group space. So 
it's a bit odd thinking about the office of the future. The more we are working at home, the more the office is more of a group and a social space. Mm. And so the less I think design will be focused around quiet time and the more it be focused around trying to make it, you know, convivial, uh, have a lot of meeting space, have a lot of areas to eat and get socialize. And that, you know, oddly goes exactly against the pandemic. So again, it's why my Buster companies is right now kind of free. I wouldn't do anything right now. Um, it's worth planning for the long run, but I wouldn't be spending a lot of money on offices for, you know, the pandemic phase, given hopefully this thing, I mean, it's hard to know, but it looks like probably next summer, maybe it will be when the vaccines will be publicly available. I mean, my broad advice from talking to a lot of companies is whatever you do, don't sign long leases on high rise buildings. If you have leases and they're, you know, skyscrapers, you know, one of the few things that's very clear is skyscrapers are cursed. Those buildings are absolutely cursed. So, you know, downtown Manhattan or San Francisco or London or Tokyo, those two buildings are absolutely, you know, cursed for two reasons. One is how do you get to the front door? We know from plenty of evidence that, you know, subway and tube ridership rates are, you know, have yet to go beyond about 25%. Already people are very nervous about going onto small and close spaces. And B, when you get to the front door, how do you get up to, let's say, floor 27? You've got to take the elevator. Mm -hmm. And again, it's impossible to do that. And without being too close to somebody, you know, post pandemic, you may think, well, people will not be so nervous about it. But in the surveys we got back recently, 70% of people said even post pandemic, they will be worried about being in a crowded subway or an elevator. And I think, you know, the short answer is spending six months so far of watching those videos of people sneezing and you know, yeah. those particles and x-ray flying mm-hmm. everywhere has made everyone, I mean, me included, nervous. And, you know, another six months of this or nine months of this. I just, I don't think we're going to be totally comfortable ever again going back to be packed in sardines and subway trains or going, you know, elevators going up at 8.30 and coming down at lunch or at 5.30, 5 o'clock. So, I, you know, for firms and offices, it's much more revision to the kind of 80s of suburban office parks and, you know, trying to have them as more meeting spaces. Yeah, I was thinking also how much we have learned about viruses and the spread of viruses and that that may actually impact how we all treat the seasonal flu, which historically has just been, oh, well, you know, it's a given, right? But I think now as we've learned more, you're right, it's not just covid People are just more aware of traveling in small spaces with other with other people, hell as other people, and having them breathe on you and sneeze on you in, in spaces where there's no ventilation. So yeah, I think that's a very interesting observation that that we have changed. It may not be only that our environment has changed, but but we have changed. And so our sensibilities are different. Yeah, I think, you know, the other I, I totally agree. And the other point on this is if you think back to ebola and sars and mers and bird flu uh and h1m i mean and these were multiple prior pandemic you know potential pandemics that never quite came to be but you realize in some senses how many near misses we had and there were right. very serious flu epidemics in what 60 geez, what was it 62 and 57 i think it was so yeah and i think even if individuals are a bit short-sighted and forget these stuff, large firms that are obviously making long-run real estate purchases aren't. In fact, I was talking to a property developer uh, that owns some very large commercial leases, and they were talking about a kind of landmark building that they own in a huge, you know, very famous U.S. city. I don't want to mention which city it is. You can probably figure out which building it is from that. But <laughs> they said um, their building, they were really struggling after 9-11 to lease the top floors because 
People were worried that terrorists in future, after 9-11, would decide to attack their atoll building with a landmark that terrorists would go for that building. And so they Mm -hmm. said it took three years, they thought, to get back to regular lease uh, kind of rates on those buildings. And I think that was, you know, the 9-11 was clearly a major event, but I don't think it's anywhere near as searing on our mindset as the pandemic is going to be. And so Mm -hmm. I think this is going to last a long time in terms of the impact. I mean, the fact that cities are getting a bit of a kick down and the suburbs and rural areas are getting a push up in comparison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Okay. I want to talk about the elephant in the room. In my experience, talking to all kinds of people on both sides of this issue about working from home, the thing that we don't really talk about, but you brought up at the beginning is whether or not people are really working when they're at home. And okay. So I want to have your uh, thoughts first about how working from home works for some people in terms of productivity and maybe how it doesn't work for others or what what have you found so the only thing i okay, i'll give you two data points and i'll kind of you know give you some broader thoughts so the two data points is obviously c trip where on average for those type of jobs and you know as you pointed out earlier it's in some sense very narrow set of jobs but for people doing kind of data entry repeated telephone call things they were significantly more productive so that maybe you know covers 10 20 percent of the economy the other data point it has is just a survey evidence from employers and employees how both have been very surprised about how productive they have been working from home and in fact mm-hmm. that's been followed up as you've seen by loads of announcements by companies like facebook and google twitter quora that are all saying, oh, you know, we're we're so happy with it, we're going to move to a permanent working home, at least part-time post-pandemic. So in general, I think there's a good shift. I, I, you know, another story that will illustrate a point was, I know, do you remember when Marissa Mayer was in the news in 2013 over canceling working? So I interviewed Marissa Mayer about uh, four or five weeks ago, follow up about, I emailed her and she Oh, nice. She replied and said, oh, I've had so many media inquiries, but since you're a professor at Stanford, I'd talk to you. So, <laughs> there you um, go. You've got clout. <laughs> yeah, we have clout. It turned out I should have been better at this because our kids, my four-year-old is at the same snack table as her kid in the kindergarten. Oh, she my gosh. I didn't know. I actually had no idea. And I, I, uh, I said, oh, my four-year-old Catherine was there. Anyway, so she said, oh, yeah, my twins are here. Yeah. So, oh, that's funny. But so I asked her about it. It was really interesting. It's very relevant to your question. So she said when she took over at Yahoo in 2012, they had been through something like six CEOs in the last seven years. Yahoo were really struggling. Yeah. Were churning through CEOs. They brought in Marissa Mayer as a superstar CEO to try and turn the thing around. She said when she got into the firm pretty rapidly, she discovered they really didn't have a very good HR uh, appraisal system. So when I was at McKinsey, we had this ruthless kind of, vicious but highly effective uh, appraisal system whereby everyone you work with would evaluate you on all kinds of dimensions and they'd come up with scores and rank you and you know bad things would happen for people in the left tail and great things happen people on the right tail but i thought mm-hmm. however brutal it was it was fair i didn't have any disagreement with it and i thought it was a very effective system and you know, oh boy it definitely motivated me to work hard and she said okay. when she went into yahoo there was really nothing like that it was you know everyone was getting very high grades you couldn't really tell and so she had overhauled the performance review system. And then not long into that process about, you know, she said roughly a quarter into it. So she really hadn't got the thing up and running properly. She discovered this group of people working from home that some of them appeared to be never logging in. Yeah. So 
in order to do work, they needed to log into their work laptops, but they would days would go by without them ever logging in. So they were clearly just goofing off. And she said the problem was this nasty combination of very weak performance review with working from home. Mm-hmm. So I think the question on performance at home depends critically on whether your firm is well managed and you're able to evaluate people based on outputs. So for example, my outputs would be like teaching and research and Stanford, I think does a pretty good job of evaluating me on that. They don't really care where I do it from or, you know, if I go sit in a cafe all day and write papers, I'll do it at home, mm-hmm. I'll do it in my garden. They just want to see the uh, publications and research and good teaching ratings or whether they evaluate you based on inputs, which is obviously far worse. But, you know, Stanford could say, I want to see you in the office, sat at your desk, for, you know, for a, we're going to have a pressure sensor on your chair and make sure you're there for, you know, eight hours a day for five Mm -hmm. days a week. Now, if you're a firm that's not very well managed and you basically are managing people based on the inputs, which may be making sure they're there and physically watching them, working from home is really challenging. And that often turns out to be smaller firms that haven't really, you know, often pulled together formal management systems and do a lot of management by walking around. The boss is there and kind of see who's around and who's working. If you, on the other hand, have very effective performance management systems, you can evaluate people based on output. You weren't ever really physically observing them before, so it doesn't make much difference. A lot of companies I speak to tend to be larger firms and fall into the second category. They would say, ah, you know, we evaluate people on their coding or the deals they make or new products or pitches. And honestly, I was never evaluating them before based on what I could see them doing. So it really hasn't made any difference. So I think it critically depends actually on how the firm is run as to whether this is a big problem or not. Yeah. And so my listeners have heard me rant about this before, but I think that's a really important takeaway from this conversation is if you are resistant to the idea of people working from home because your management style is basically seeing whether or not they're sitting in their chair, the problem is you not with the employee <laughs> and not with the policy. And, and so good management really does allow for this kind of flexibility so that people can do their work at different times in different locations and that it comes down to good management to, to take care of that. So, so I, I think that's a really important takeaway that we've gotten from having this all forced upon us is the importance of management, the importance of human resources and good metrics. So yeah, thanks for for clarifying that for us. I think that's a really important takeaway. Jennifer, another, I had a call with someone on Friday that was a friend of a friend who worked for, I probably better not mention them, a massive US corporation that everyone I've heard of and has probably used their products. And they were saying, it, they then I left that company a couple of years ago, but they said they used to run an entire team working from home, more or less, in Austin. And actually it's interesting, they said, this company's across the US and they have an Austin branch and they said, this guy was saying, I'd get my team into the office one or two days a week and let them work from home the rest of the week. And they were highly effective. And he said, his group did really well. There was then a big reorg and a lot of his group moved on. He was leaving the firm, but they let him stay for another couple of months to kind of wind down what had been a very successful product development. And he said, um, in the last couple of months before he left the firm, he obviously <laughs> at this point had stopped worrying very much, was mm-hmm. working something like 10 hours a week but he was getting, he was ticking over his old project. And in fact, it was highly successful in making the firm many millions of dollars of revenue. And so I kind of had the hypothetical discussion with him. It wasn't obvious that on the one hand, as far as the firm was concerned, he was a highly productive employee. He was, uh, you know, making revenue way more than what he was being paid. 
And so it was a great deal for the firm to hire him. But from his perspective, he obviously could have been working more. And, you know, as a firm goes, if you have an employee that's very productive, very effective, and then they happen to manage to do it by being hyper productive in, you know, 10 to 15 hours a week, maybe you also don't mind. I mean, this comes back to output-based evaluation. Mm -hmm. I think if people are well-motivated, to some extent, I don't care how they get their work done. If they're highly effective, if, you know, they want to work all night and sleep all day, um, Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's fine with me as long as it works. Uh, obviously, you know, they can't communicate the rest of the team and it's a problem, then that, that's no good. But, you know, he was a great example of someone who was basically doing effectively a couple of hours a day, but was so effective that he seemed to be, you know, operating well. Yeah, I think that's another one also. Again, if you're managing people by keeping track of the number of hours that they're working, again, the problem is you. And and I don't know when we're what decade is going to come when we get to get away from from this idea that FaceTime matters. You know how, how long you sit in your chair and how many hours you work. And it's funny because we have so many systems that are set up not to be hours based. You know that's why we have salaried employees because they don't have to work a certain number of hours a week. But we can't seem to let go of some of our old habits that yeah. it's forty hours a week or. You know, you're bragging if you've worked 50 hours a week or you're a shirker if you've only worked 30. I mean, you know how we've we just can't seem to get that thing off our finger. You know, we just can't yes, and move I away sh- from that. <laughs> I, sh- I should say another thing I've heard is interesting is a rise in this surveillance software. Mm-hmm. So I did an interview for um, CBBC, Canadian it must be CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. I'm thinking of the BBC, but it's the CBC. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But uh, the, the journalist interviewing me was saying the person she interviewed just before her worked for one of these companies that makes surveillance software. So what it does is it records every keystroke and email and what you're doing and sends snapshots every 15 minutes. And they, she said they'd had like a 500% increase in demand, just phenomenal. And I've mm-hmm. heard this from other places. There's been an explosion in companies installing the surveillance software, but Again, I'm pretty skeptical because if you need to resort to input measurement, again, I mean, as you say, it's not a great situation. Again, I, you know, I, I was actually talking to someone else who said that they've installed this in their team. But what has happened is, of course, people do things like they go to lunch, but they leave their email open. So it looks like they're spending ages doing emails. Or <laughs> they run back and forth every 10 minutes while eating a sandwich to toggle. <laughs> Uh, kind of things that are really distortive, deeply annoying if you're an employee to have to do right. it. It feels like you're yes. treated like a kid. Yes. So again, it, I'm totally aligned with you that we really should be output evaluating. And if you can't output evaluate employees, it's basically a problem with the management system. I mean, when I, when I think about what I did at McKinsey, I did very variable and weird jobs as a consultant. You're obviously you know, rapidly changing and you'd think that would be impossible to evaluate it. But even for that role, they, or as an academic, I write research papers and you can't really predict the direction of research but in both roles it was it's reasonably you know easy to evaluate output so i think almost every job if you put enough time and effort into it you can effectively evaluate people's output and then that makes working from home relatively uh, effectively a much much more practical solution because they're, they're fully motivated and feel empowered as well not just kind of treated like kids yeah, exactly. Well, how discouraging to people. So, I mean, that would really be a great outcome from all of this if, is if, okay, we've shifted the culture, more people are working from home, and as a result, management has to raise their game. You know, I would love that, that outcome that as a result of all of this chaos, we've shaken things up and so managers have to figure out better ways to figure out who's a good employee and who's not so great and could use some help. 
That would that would be wonderful to see that happen. Yep, I agree. All right, tell us about face-to-face meetings because there's I I just have this gut feel that that really is important that we can't just all go home and work from home. I just have this feeling having been a manager for a long time that getting together in person, having that kind of camaraderie, that interaction really matters. But but from a research standpoint, what have you seen? I totally agree. On the other hand, I've been challenged. I mean, again, on the executive education course I was giving today and multiple times I've been talking to firms that honestly isn't what I would call totally cast iron evidence that face-to-face meetings make you more productive. What I mean by cast iron evidence is, you know, not case studies. A lot of, when I've talked to academics, they've often thrown case studies at me, but case studies are never ideal for various reasons. Mm -hmm. So what I mean is a large sample study where there's some, you know, Imagine a randomized control trial. That's kind of the gold standard. The way we evaluate drugs is, you know, you don't go out and take sick people, give them a drug and ask them if they're better. You randomly take a a group of patients. You take a group of patients, randomized in treatment control. It's very regulated. It's very scientifically carried out. You look for, you know, obviously side effects, et cetera. So I'm not aware of any strong research that shows that uh, you need to be face-to-face to be more productive. There's a lot of stuff pointing in that direction, but nothing robust. I would say my views on this come much more actually just from honestly talking to dozens and dozens of firms. You know, there are very there's some high profile individuals, you know, the late Steve Jobs is famous for saying you have to be in the office, you know, to spark up those kind of accidental conversations over the water coolers. Or what's an economist I would call revealed preference. So the fact that firms across the US spend tens of billions of dollars making their offices nice to try and encourage people to come in. All of that points towards the sense that face-to-face meetings are important for kind of relaxed conversations, creative conversation. I mean, I personally certainly see that as well. When I come up with new research ideas, it's almost always sitting down in person to have a lunch or have a coffee mm-hmm. or you know, seeing someone physically give a talk and then going to discuss it with them afterwards. And I mean, I honestly don't have any academic published work on it, but I think that's it's close to a consensus that that is important. I think that's the big reason why most U.S. firms are hanging on to the idea that post-pandemic, uh, they're going to have you know half time roughly, say, of people that can work from home still coming into the office because creativity. And then the other the other angle of it is motivation. It's not just that you need to be creative. It's hard to be motivated if you're at home in your bedroom or mm-hmm. wherever it is for five days a week. So coming to the office, I think, is important for creativity. I think it's important for motivation. And it's also important for loyalty. So if I think of, you know, just as myself as an anecdote, I'm loyal to Stanford University. In part, they've treated me very well, but in part, I really like my colleagues. I've been Mm -hmm. to many of their kids' birthday parties. I've been out for dinner with them, et cetera. If I was entirely working from home, I would be missing all that element. And I honestly don't think I'll be as loyal to my employer. So I really think generally face-to-face meetings are valuable. But I I have to say, unfortunately, I don't have strong research evidence to back that up. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe it will just take time before we put that, uh, before we find that. And I will say quickly before I forget, I really appreciate you putting some rigor to this topic because so much of what happens in business is not researched very well. And so I, I just am often frustrated by books that come out or new ideas that come out or new fads and new trends that aren't really based very much on real data and I think oftentimes we get, we do things wrong because of that. So I really appreciate you trying to bring some, some real data to the fore in a situation like this. Thank you. 
All right. Before I let you go, I was uh, hoping that you might have something you'd like to share with the listeners, a way that they could follow your work or any resources that you would like to refer them to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess the you know the, the easiest places to go go to one is my uh, website. So if you just Google Nicholas Bloom or Nicholas Bloom Stanford, it will come up. But my homepage, I put up three blogs. They're all quite short. Um, oh. I, you know, they're not very long. And the most recent, the June one is, uh, you know, how does working from home work? It's just a set of thoughts and the impact of working from home. Some a few basic tips and some predictions of the future. And then I gave a, you know, it's slightly more entertaining. Uh, a TEDx talk uh, in 2017 on working from home. Oh, nice. Which now, you know, it's fantastic. I did it before COVID because mm-hmm. it has all this stuff and how there's such a negative stigma around working from home. And I don't know if you even, you know, there's even a song called Working From Home by Fifth Harmony that was, you know, went multiple platinum in the US and many other countries. Uh, but if you listen to the song, you realize there is no work going on in that work. Oh. I mean, <laughs> right. one, one of my friends said, um, there's a great line in front of my friend. She said her daughter came home with a baseball cap that said working from home across the top of it. Mm. And she said to her daughter, you're not going out of the house wearing that cap as if, you know, that I don't know, as if it said, you know, kiss me slowly, hug me quick or something. It's like working from home before the <laughs> pandemic had become a byword. You know, surely looked it up in the urban dictionary it would say something, you know, very rude, but right. That has completely evaporated. Um, but that that TEDx talk I gave in 2017, in some ways, is fantastic. It's timestamped. You can just see how negatively viewed it was three years ago and how that's <sighs> totally changed, which I think, by the way, one of the few positives to come out of the pandemic has been this move towards working from home. Because mm-hmm. if you think of all the main technologies that, you know, I think of the big five technologies we need, it's email, broadband, cheap laptops, video calls, and something like Dropbox, you know, cloud, mm-hmm, et cetera. Mm-hmm. All of them have been around now for the last 10 years and working effectively. And, you know, so we've, we've been able to work from home, certainly for the last five years, highly effectively. And somehow it's taken the pandemic to spark this off. But hopefully yeah. post-pandemic, this will be here to stay. And it will be a big improvement in lifestyles, and, you know, family living and reduction in commuting, et cetera. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for taking the time to talk to us. It was really informative and interesting. And yeah, thanks so much for the work that you're doing. I really appreciate it. Jennifer, thanks again for talking to me. That was great. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.